All right, seven minutes after eight o'clock, and we are back to gardening. And to get the new year off to a very good start, we get to visit with Mr. Howard Garrett, the Dirt Doctor. Good morning, Howard. Good morning. It's uh, it's it's been a wet week. Uh, did y'all dodge the snow, or did you get a little bit of the? I saw some pink stuff. Looked like it was headed your way a little earlier in the week. Now we were in Prescott for uh, Christmas to see Logan and Bo, and got a little bit powdering there and then they got a heavy snow after we left but all we got here was kind of cold rain and <laughs> i've got several projects still sitting around out there that i haven't done because uh the soil is just still absolutely sopping wet yeah never seen it this bad we're good in the case of the water business but boy it sure is uh it's it's not easy to get out and get things done and uh there are places around where standing water gets to be an issue where uh you know, just keeping things so wet that uh, drives all the oxygen out of the out of the soil, and uh, plants don't really like it. Well, we're probably going to get uh, more and more calls, those of us in the tree biz, about water standing around trees that have been uncovered, and there's depressions around the trees. The water's staying there longer than I've ever seen uh, by quite a bit. And people need to not worry about it because, you know, if they need to remember that if the soil was still still there, the flare would be wet all the right. time. And uh, it's just being wet now while its ground is super saturated, but it'll drain away and evaporate here in a day or so. I had a caller a little while ago talking about an area not, not around just an exposed root flare, but standing water that's getting a little bit stinky, and I was suggesting maybe a little bit of hydrogen peroxide to, clean things up and even, you know, flocculate the soil a bit. Uh, would you go along with that? Yeah, that's fine. Um, probably help. You don't want to do it over and over again. But sure. time, I think, would be uh, fine. We've got the uh, formulas and dilution recommendations and everything on the uh, on the website. The uh, you, know, you don't want to overdo it because it goes from being something beneficial to being a, uh, you know, a killing herbicide, sure. which would damage uh, microbes and uh, as well as uh, tree roots and mycorrhizal fungus and things like that. But but just on a limited limited basis, probably, you know, it's uh, it, it's not like something we can just use an awful lot of like Garrett juice. It seems to work well on just about anything, but uh, it, it it certainly has its place. So, anything new or different going on in the new year? Are you making any additional resolutions or? Kind of like me, I think my biggest resolution is just trying to get more people to spread the word about organics. I, I become more concerned about our food supply, become more concerned about the contamination of what's on the grocery store shelves, and I just, uh, I'm, I'm encouraging everybody to shop wise, look for the little non-GMO butterfly, look for the certified organic, and just above all, stay away from anything toxic in your own home and landscape. Well, I don't know if you've seen it yet, but our uh, recent, the latest newsletter is about not resolutions. I scratched out resolutions and <laughs> changed it to plans. I, uh, you know, goals and resol- resolutions, you know, a, a finite, a definite kind of thing is not as good as systems and plans. Sure. So, uh, now, it hadn't, yeah, hadn't come into my inbox yet, but I'll be watching for it. All right, I'll be there any time. Anyway, we put you know some of the organic stuff there, obviously, and uh, other related things. Some of the health uh, recommendations that that we have for you. I've uh, been going through something interesting, and I ran into 
something related to that. I, I just recently signed up for the VA. I've never done that before. Oh, really? Yeah, and the reason that I did, my uh, son-in-law, uh, Logan's husband, Bo, uh, his father uh, was at Camp Lejeune at the same time I was. And really? We didn't know each other way back in those days. Huh. He has Parkinson's disease. Well, no. Parkinson's is on the list. Um, the uh, There's a whole new department or area or whatever set up for uh, people like us that were at Camp Lejeune during that period of time when the groundwater was contaminated, when the drinking water was contaminated and everything. Mm -hmm. And he's gone through the process, and they recommended that I do the same. And I thought, well, you know, I probably ought to just look into it and see. I don't think that uh, blood clots, which may be, you know, what what I could have that would be related, that's not on the list. Parkinson's is. Parkinson's and a whole bunch of, uh, of cancers is on the list. And I thought, well, it'd be interesting for me to check into it and see how it's working anyway. And, of course, you know, we got this partial government shutdown going on. I wondered how that would affect it. I went down there, and uh, I've been down there twice now. And it, it, it's a big VA here in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's one of, one of the big ones. Still and out toward Lancaster? Was, yeah, well, it's in Dallas. It's okay. in south of Dallas. Yeah. I was pleasantly surprised at how efficient and how well it worked. I mean, I... Went in to get my labs done. I'd sat there for less than 10 minutes before I was in and got it done. And, and the, the difficult part is trying to understand the bureaucracy, you know, all the oh, different sure. places you've got to go and and you need to do this first before that and everything. I'm kind of finally getting a little bit of a handle on it. And I don't think that uh, what I have, the severe tinnitus and the blood clot, thing for forcing me to take medicine is going to be you know covered down there but it's going to be interesting to see how it how it plays out and just to understand how it works and people that really you know go war syndrome and those kind of things people with that those issues uh, really do need to take advantage of that system down there i was very very impressed actually but one of the things that impressed me the most was when i checked in the registration area this guy uh that checked me in start brought up you know we got to talk about health issues obviously and he brought up high fructose corn syrup and that's mm-hmm. kind of his hot button that that of all the things in the world yeah that you need to stop doing that can affect your health severely is that and he's really looked into it a lot and spent a lot of time on it and made the comment and this is something i'm going to look into more too i you and i both have you know, railed against the stuff for a long time, but sure. he he had a point that was interesting. He said that uh, the fructose corn syrup is not recognized by the body as being anything, mm-hmm. and therefore it's just put over into the shelf as fat. Uh huh. And uh, you know, we've always known that people that uh, drink diet sodas and do things like that a lot of times they have a bigger problem with. Uh, uh, with weight issues than people that are eating butter and and corn and uh, <laughs> coconut oil and healthy and, oils, yeah, yeah, fat from uh, grass-fed animals and all that sort of thing. So anyway, it was interesting to see that a guy like that, a bureaucrat sitting there helping people for the government, was uh, giving out some information that's really very good. That is that is unique. I hope you I hope you find that it uh, is more widespread than that. But yeah, 
corn, uh, high fructose corn syrup is just, there, there's some other interesting research out too that says that once you, when you start out a meal or you in advance of a meal, you're drinking one of these, uh, uh, soft drinks or whatever, that it sort of primes your digestive system in the way that it's going to take even some of the good things and whether it's going to process them more toward fat storage or whether it's going to process them more towards energy production is not just the corn high fructose corn syrup that's bad, but it just it predisposes your body to do bad things with some of the good things out there. So, sure. yeah, I'm with you. The more that you can get out of your diet, the better off you're going to be. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize how ubiquitous that stuff is. It's in so so many products. Oh yeah. If you're doing, if you're eating any kind of a processed food, uh, snacks or you know up to breakfast cereals and various kinds of things, the chances are extremely high that high fructose corn syrup is a is a big part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of uh, sweeteners and things like that, you probably are already aware of this, but I had a caller last week was calling asking about the benefits of honey, and we got into a fairly long discussion. A couple of other people called in to participate, and uh, I was not familiar with this uh, um, apparently very, very good honey coming out of New Zealand. It's called Manuka, made from Manuka, M-A-N-U-K-A. Yeah, and I've uh, read about it. I have never bought it and used it though. Yeah, but uh, they were just you know, and and there is uh, there's some companies selling it under the name of Meta M E D I Meta Honey that uh, they're using it you know for things other than than flavorings, but using it for the wound dressing for burn wound dressing and things like that. But uh, apparently, just some really amazing things. I've looked at it a little bit online. I haven't. Uh, I've got a real good health uh, food store here, and I'm going to talk to them about it. But they were making it sound like, of course, any honey, just about any honey, is not contaminated. Local honey is going to be good, but sounds like this is something worth looking into. Yeah, I think it's a real high quality honey. Yeah, the, the Japanese have been using honey and researching it for well, using it more than researching it actually for years on severe burns, and it's amazing what it does, not only to uh, ease the pain and, and help heal burns, but eliminate the scarring. Yeah, yeah. And it's just being naturally antimicrobial. The, the, the person that originally called me was saying, well, how long can you store it? When does it go bad? And I said, well, it may crystallize, but it never goes bad. It's just it's naturally antimicrobial to the point you'll never see mold growing on it and uh, never seems to decompose and uh, and cause any problems at all. And I would think that's one reason that it's so good as a burn dressing because uh, it's my understanding, and, and thank goodness uh, neither of us have ever really suffered any traumatic injury like that, but it's the infections that result from burns and wounds like that that are what usually do the most damage to the human body and this honey just really stops it yeah the good foods have in most cases you know more than one good uh, value just another reason to eat organic stuff as much as you can and the natural uh, foods not the processed stuff and it's hard to stay away from them i'm I'm guilty as anybody. I was on the plane and you go into Prescott to see see them and they served a new snack on the plane and it was uh plane crackers was the name of it from Ritz. <laughs> and they taste great and I ate some of them. I I admit it, I'm guilty and I'm sure that 
High fructose <laughs> corn syrup was a major part of those things. Well, it's it's hard to stay totally away from, but uh, the uh, some of the other things that are out there too. I you know I, you occasionally, and there are things that I will sweeten with sugar. Honey is my preferred sweetener, but it's not always available. But uh, just trying to find cane sugar, and fortunately, there are at least most of the restaurants that I dine in, they will have. You know, on their sugar, it will either say cane sugar or, better still, organic cane sugar. But the fact that most of the sugar out there that's not labeled that way is going to be sugar beet, you know, sugar, which is not only, you know, genetically modified, but almost certainly is going to have higher levels of some different herbicides and things on it. And uh, But the, the thing that amazes me most is talking to intelligent people that have never heard of it, that think, you know, that think that there's no difference in food out there. And I just think, how can you live in this world and not know that there's a lot of stuff out there that's just patently bad for you? And uh, um, have you have you found the, the book called Poison Foods of North America yet? No, I haven't gotten that. I've heard you talking about it, but I have not uh, gotten that. I'm slogging through some other books at the moment, but that's that sounds like a good one. Well, Back it's, real quick to yeah. something. Do you know that uh, this is something I don't know it, that sugar cane is not GMO? I don't. I don't know of any genetically modified sugar canes. I I know it whether it is or not. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it is. I know that. Uh, uh, not only, and it's why it's important to go to uh, to organic cane sugar if you're going to use sugar. But I know that it is highly, you know, sprayed, treated with uh, growth uh, regulators. I guess would be the best way to put it. Um, because I had a friend, an orchid grower friend, years ago before we even knew much about genetic modification or anything, and his job was to manipulate the Hawaiian sugar cane to bring it up to the highest sugar content possible right at the time of harvest. And I know they were using chemicals that we certainly would not approve of, and I, I don't have any reason to believe that that's changed. But I, I don't think, and I'll ask Diane uh, about that, I don't think the sugar canes are genetically modified, but uh, I think you still have to be careful to stay away from uh, from the ones that are are treated with the growth regulating pro- products. I'd be surprised if they're not, but yeah, that would uh, be interesting to uh, find out about. And if that's the case, we need to stay away from that too and go to stevia or something that you can grow in your backyard like a weed. <laughs> or or get a good beehive and be producing your own honey as long as your neighbors around aren't aren't using toxic stuff. All right. We did a uh, Dallas Morning News. I don't know if I did this as a newsletter or not. I probably will follow up and do it if I didn't. But uh did a newsletter. I did a uh, Dallas Morning News column on tree ears. Uh-huh. And have, I don't know if we've talked about that before, but one of the things I ran into recently is, is that uh, uh, some arborists, and I looked up as more than one, there was one that had written a newsletter about it, and then I looked it up and and found that uh, apparently several arborists, if not most, say that tree ears, which are fungus, right, fruiting bodies of fungus, uh, rot that's going on in the, uh, in the tree, not the living part of the tree, but the uh, other parts, uh, has no cure. Uh, they were very strong to say that if you got it, your tree's going to die. There's nothing mm-hmm. you can do. 
and it really bothers me when I hear that line on that and other things too, because there is. If you catch it early enough, if it's rotted the whole inside of the tree and the sure. roots are you know always already half dead, I mean it's going to die. Yeah, but if if it's just getting started, and we dealt with this specifically on the the champion country, that's yeah. exactly yeah. what was going on at the base of it. Uh, if you catch it just reasonably early enough and uh, get the flare exposed and do mm-hmm. the entire sick tree treatment, you can absolutely save a tree because yeah. it'll turn around and it'll turn around very quickly. I, it, there's really not very many arborists that that understand that relationship between the, the diseases that happen, the parasites that happen, the you know sap sucker that attacks the tree and all that, right. to the stress mm-hmm. in the tree and that you can change that yeah and and the root flare exposure is the number one place to start and absolutely the most important part yeah compaction and other things can play a role but uh you know the arborist would be right in saying that there's no chemical cure but we've learned a long time ago that chemical cures are not the way to go and um i and i need to there are a couple of good books and i've got to find out which are the best on this uh on what the the big buzz in a lot of arboriculture is, and that is compartmentalization of disease and the fact that trees that are healthy are able to compartmentalize. And we had this discussion about the tree ears with uh, one of our good arborists uh, recently, and he was saying exactly the same thing. said, you take away the stress, you allow the tree to do so, and if it's not too widespread, the tree compartmentalizes it and keeps it from spreading. And that's why it's so important that not to do the drilling into the trees, whether you're thinking you're going to help by draining water out of cavity or this stupid injection of the trees for oak wilt control that, that, you know, poking a hole in a spot where you have a problem is going to always make it worse, not better. Well, the only exception to that, and I put it in the column, if, mm-hmm. you're, going, if you're set on treating the tree and injecting something in the, into the tree, you know, I agree with you that it's best not to do it. But if, if you do it, the best thing to do would be with hydrogen peroxide. Right. And the hydrogen peroxide, to treat something, uh, you know, beneficially like that, you, if you get that uh, concentrated stuff, 27 to 30%, you don't mm-hmm. use any more than than an ounce per gallon, because above that, you're going above the 3% commercial stuff, and it's going to burn and do damage. Yeah. So I, it'd be better not to do it at all. You just you don't need to do it. On the big pecan, we did take out, uh, we physically removed some of the dead rot that was in that big wound area. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's fine to do. It's a little bit dicey because if you go beyond the, the rotted yep. stuff and you cut into the living, the still healthy tissue, you're going to cause a problem. You're going to spread it farther. But if you just take out the completely dead stuff so you let air in and circulation uh, to happen better, that that's okay and that's beneficial. And that's what we did. And the callousing of that big wound has been remarkably fast in yep. closing up. Well, it's it's a real important point and, and very, very true because the that shelf fungus, another name for the tree ears, is 
very common. But I always tell people, you know, it's a sign you've got a problem. It's a sign you've got damaged tissue. And uh, give the chance the tree a chance. And through, you know, root flare exposure primarily, the trees can overcome a whole lot of it. And uh, there's something I've I've got to go back and read. We actually uh, hit our, our little New Year's gathering. Um, Wendy, one of our managers, brought one of the uh, – commercial magazines that we get the professional magazines actually called grower talks and was citing some things from and this fella is not organic but uh was going on and on about exactly what we talk about about how bad synthetic nitrogen fertilizers are and he was pointing out how much more susceptible they make plants to disease how they have documented increased not only in the number of aphid outbreaks but in the size and health of the aphids that they just absolutely love these non-organic practices and uh supposedly and of course growth regulation is a big deal in the uh you know in the production world but supposedly there's going to they have found a natural product i haven't heard if it's going to be organic or not but a uh, a natural growth regulator that is as good as some of these uh chemical things that you know i think will be i think will be a, a big thing if it does turn to work out that way because uh it's just there, there's so many things that make these people say oh we just can't certify organic uh, a lot of the stuff we're producing and but it sounds like there's going to be some some new things out there that will be good plus just having a a formerly chemical guy recognize and put into print that the current standards for raising seedlings and things like that are what are leading to so much disease and insect it was just so much fun to see that in a publication that's going out to the biggest growers in the industry Sounds like he's as smart as Michael Amaranthus. Mike's been saying that for quite a quite a while. Yeah, uh, it's it's just common sense, and it's so difficult to get away from it though, because uh, people use the high nitrogen stuff and see see results. They see green growth, and they see things happen, and they think, well, that couldn't be bad. It's just fertilizer. Yeah. <laughs> wrong i told you didn't i that we ran into michael amaranthus's nephew who yeah. uh has big mycorrhizal uh production company up there and they're combining some of the mycorrhizae with some of the good uh, bacteria bacillus subtilis and some of those others so it's it's uh, carrying on a family tradition which i'm so glad to see one thing i wanted to ask you you know we talk about the fact that peat moss is so antimicrobial and plus the fact that it is a non-renewable resource but on the antimicrobial uh end of what peat moss does what makes it so good as a preservative do you know if it is more antibacterial more antifungal or if it is both um well i don't know you know to keep a, a, a an animal from or a human body from mm-hmm. decaying so it's it's probably working primarily on bacteria but i i would say it would be uh, antibacterial and antimicrobial and anti-other microbes yeah uh, i don't think if something won't grow in it, it's probably pretty, pretty much across the board, you know. And that's that's something I guess I need to direct to, uh, you know, the Michael Amaranthus or somebody like that because I'm I'm seeing some of the peat-based products which we don't recommend 
but they're adding mycorrhizae to a peat-based soil. And I'm thinking, you know, is this this is just crazy to be putting one of the most beneficial microbes in the world into a highly antimicrobial substance. And that's what just I I wondered if I'm missing something that if it is not that bad against uh you know the fungi but it certainly is against the bacteria i, I don't like peat moss period but i just uh, that just kind of raised a question in my mind as to if if uh if it doesn't affect the mycorrhizae and uh and i, I don't know it's well, just it's, curiosity you're probably right but it's a, it's a step in the right direction it's just like years ago i don't know if i've ever told you this but i got a call one day this was over 10 years ago, maybe longer than that, I got a call from the head guy of the Peat Moss Association, the mm-hmm. national up in Canada. Right. And he said he wanted to talk to me. He saw one of my articles saying that peat moss is antimicrobial, and I didn't recommend he wanted to talk to me. I said, fine, you want to come on my show with me? And he said, he said yeah, and he did. And uh, we, we talked about it, and... Uh, Early in the conversation, he said, well, we don't have anything against composting. He said, as a matter of fact, we recommend that you uh, add compost to the peat moss when you use it because uh, the com- we do uh, realize that the peat moss is, is more uh, costly. And I said, <laughs> I said that's very interesting. I said, uh, what do you think uh, is the beneficial part about that mixture your peat moss or the compost that you're adding to it so you know here the head honchos said that it's really better to add that and that would make it where the mycorrhizae in that mix you know could Uh could have a chance if it's pure peat moss I don't think uh, I don't think there'd be much chance of the mycorrhizae growing. I I didn't think so, but I just it's it, I haven't had a chance to to talk to uh, to somebody that specializes in the you know mycorrhizae. But uh, it's it's interesting, and anybody that thinks that uh, that peat moss isn't a good preservative, I recall when we made a trip to Ireland a few years back. It's amazing the thing that they have things that they have dug out of the peat bogs, and you know anthropologists and archaeologists have known for a long time where they're bringing out the bones of the saber-toothed tigers and the mastodons and some of the other things that peat bogs are the places to go looking because that's where the most perfectly preserved material in the world is there's been some human bodies brought out that are just remarkably well intact that's right (laughs) anyway well interesting as always um uh, we certainly wish you guys a a very wonderful new year and uh and just i i very optimistic looking forward i think there are a lot of things despite what the news media would have you believe i think there's an awful lot of positive things going on out there and i think in our industry i think we're we're making a few inroads we we find face a few setbacks but just the things that we have heard from people over the holidays it seems like everybody takes the time to say thank you a little bit more and just more and more people seem to be uh, recognizing, uh, you know, the things you and I talk about are certainly the best way to live and by far the best way to garden. Still in the minority, but we're going the right direction. Uh, everybody check out our latest newsletter. It's got those uh, recommended plans for your new year. And uh, enjoyed it as always, and we'll see you guys next week. We'll look forward to it, Howard. Thank you so much, and uh, Happy New Year to everybody up in your family, both two-legged and four-legged. Uh, one of the four-legged just slammed the door as you <laughs> dramatically entered the room, my tree climber. I'll see you all All right. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.
Miss Howard Garrett is uh, the Dirt Doctor, dirtdoctor.com, uh, one of the the best website on the Internet if you're looking for plant information, if you're looking for good information on good health. You know, one of the articles in our most recent newsletter we're, we're putting out is uh, Beware the Internet because there is so much information on there that either is wrong or at the very least is certainly not applicable to our area. You go to dirtdoctor.com, you're going to find very good, reasonable information that will help you garden right here in South Texas. I mean, Howard, of course, is up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, but having lived there for a number of years myself, I can certainly tell you that the growing conditions, other than being just slightly cooler, if it works in Dallas, it's probably going to work just fine down here. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. We're going to talk to Beverly, and then we're going to talk to David, and let's just do that. Good morning, Beverly. Hey, good morning, I have a question about my cyclamen. I love cyclamen, and I plant some every year. <clears throat> if they weren't so expensive, I'd plant a lot more. Um, but I've never had any come back. But this year I have one plant that reappeared from last year. And um, the leaves are beautiful, two or three times larger than the ones I got in the nursery this year. <laughs> Very good. But no blooms. I've only ever given them um, has to grow. Is there something else I should be doing? Well, the fact that it is not blooming, the fact that it has come back in effect very differently from uh, the plants you would typically plant, tell me that it probably came back from a seed because cyclamen do make seed. It is just rare for them to sprout and grow. And as a seedling plant, it's going to have to go through a maturing process before it is capable of putting on flowers. I don't think it has anything to do with your care or fertilizer. The fact that the plant is thriving tells me that it's a good, healthy plant, and I suspect it just needs to become a little bit more mature before it is physically able to make buds and flowers. So whatever you're doing, keep it up. I would expect, uh, and I'll have to ask some of the, uh, most all the cyclamen are grown a ways north of here. We get most of ours out of Denver. And uh, I'll make some inquiries as to how long it would take them to bloom from seed. But I think it's just a matter of maturity. I, I would go on doing what you're doing if you're getting good growth. And it will eventually bloom. And there is no way to speed up that maturing process. Is there uh, is there a way to carry them from year to year? Get them? Should I try to dig up the little corns or whatever they're called? Um, and save them and replant that? or You know, it's kind of like caladiums. You can do it, but um, generally the bulbs, or they are corms, I believe, have expended so much of their energy that they just don't really ever do as well the second year when they're dug and stored. One of the big things that does them in, they get a mite called a cyclamen mite when we get into hotter weather that really sets them back. And I think spraying with liquid seaweed, which will control that mite uh, as well as most others, um, just giving them real good supportive care, keeping them out of the hot sun, fertilize regularly, and unfortunately, what frequently happens between time and efforts, you're spending $10 on a $5 plant to carry it through the summer. Right. And uh, so it is possible. I know uh, my business partner, who's more of the flower gardener, and I'm more of the vegetable gardener than she is, but um, um, she's brought them through the summer just fine. But in all honesty, they're, just, they're never quite as strong and good the next year. Okay. And uh, okay. I'll be interested to hear how you know how this seedling does. I wish we could selectively 
find some more heat tolerant cyclamen, but oh my, yes. it just doesn't seem to be a big uh, you know a big push for the growers right now. So well, I'm <laughs> afraid it's going to get hot before this one matures. <laughs> Well, again, regular seaweed sprayings to keep the cyclamen mites down and um, just, again, be careful that you keep it watered but not soggy wet. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I think you'll see some, some flowers on it uh, uh, into spring or into summer. But this might be one plant that is worth the effort uh, to bring it through the summer and, and see how it does long term. Okay. All right. Appreciate your help. Happy New Year. Well, Happy New Year to you. Great question. I appreciate the call. Thank you, Beverly. Bye. All right. David's up next. Good morning, David. Morning. How are you? I'm good. How about you today? Not bad. Beautiful day. It's not raining because we're standing in water. Well, but that that sunshine we're going to get today, the fact that the temperature is supposed to get pretty warm, I think it's going to be a fantastic day to be outside. I hope we're both able to. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, question. I think last week you spoke uh, something about the, or my concern, Wesatch or mesquite, that uh, 50-50 mixture of diesel and molasses would right. kill it. My question is how big, I mean, do you, diameter of a tree or do you have, you know, more for a bigger one? Or the, do you have yeah. to have it cut or shredded? Or? The, the bigger the stump, the more I would douse it. What you're trying to do is just coat that area of root development right around the base of the stump and if it's a little one you know a cup might be good if it's a great big one it might take a gallon of it and uh a bigger one is it does it more effect if it's been shredded or cut down and then pour around it i i think it's most effective to cut it down doesn't really matter whether it's shredded or not you're just going after the after the root system of it and um yeah i basically i i seems like i always cut them off at the ground i can't say that i've really tried it on an uh you know on an existing live big growing tree i don't know whether it would be as effective or not but it uh, i'm usually cutting it down and uh you know trying to get it on there before it re-sprouts um a bigger one. Uh, the base as thick as your wrist. A gallon or more? No, uh, not that. Uh, a big one to me is, you know, one that's 18, 20 inches in diameter. Um, something oh. the size of your wrist, I'd think, uh, you know, a pint or maybe even a quart would be more than enough. Okay, I'm just trying to get a perspective. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just know. enough yeah. just to soak the soil right around the base of the stump. And will it slowly just kind of yellow defoliate in a year's time or? Again, I uh, I cut them down first, then put it on, and they just never sprout again. Okay, okay. 50-50 mixture. That's what I use. And the, it's a diesel that kills. It's a molasses. It cleans it up. It's not organic, but it sure beats Remedy and some of the really toxic brush killers out there. Well, I'm all for it. Thank you, sir, and have a great day. You do the same and a great year, and uh, we'll talk again. All right, well, let's get back to gardening for a minute here and talk to Jeff. Good morning, Jeff. Uh, good morning, Bob. Morning, I sir. A uh, very quick question. What uh, kind of vegetables can I still plant at this time of the year? Well, lots of things. Um, if you want to, uh, if you like onions, this is certainly a good time to plant onions. Onions are very successful in this area. In fact, I have... Uh, 
various people like Dr. Kirby and some people around my business that just can't wait for onion season. So it's a great time to plant onions. A little later in January, if you want to try growing leeks, leeks grow very much like onions, but they're, of course, a different flavor, great for soups, things like that. So plant some uh, leeks here in a couple of weeks. Um, All of your so-called coal family plants like broccoli and cauliflower and cabbage, all of those, uh, it's a very good time to plant right now. Uh, any of the leafy vegetables, spinach, excellent time to get spinach in the ground. And finally, there is spinach available. We went for a lot of weeks with all the clouds and rainy weather that uh, it was just hard for the nurseries to uh, get many spinach uh, plants in. And, um, oh, shoot, uh, somebody just dropped off there. Um Anyway, um, the uh, the spinach plants will do very well. Chard, kale, uh, lettuces, all those are very good plants to be planting right now. And most of those things will be planted from plants. Uh, things from seed would include um, uh, broccoli, I'm sorry, not broccoli, uh, but radishes and carrots and turnips and beets and uh Oh, gosh, uh, all those sorts of things. But if you're planting from seed, uh, then, uh, you know, you have to realize that the first uh, first few days that they are up and growing, they have not formed their antifreeze per se, and uh, they will be susceptible to cold damage. So if you're going to plant any of those things from uh, from seed, uh, just remember you probably have to put a little insulate over them the first brief period they're up. And uh uh, somehow the the phone dropped out on us there. So anyway, I hope you're able to hear that on your radio. But uh, all the leafy vegetables, spinach, uh, chard, kale, uh, lettuces, all of those things, mustard, all those things can be planted now. All of your uh, coal family plants, that's too late on Brussels sprouts, but cabbage, broccoli, uh, the uh, cauliflower, uh, the, oh gosh, uh, Romanesco is uh, the, some sort of halfway between cauliflower and broccoli would be good. And, of course, uh, the uh, things like uh, like onions and leeks. Those would all be good things to get in your garden this weekend. Let's finish up phone calls with Wanda. Good morning, Wanda. Good morning. Good morning. I was wondering, could we uh, still transplant our amaryllos or the irises? To thin them out some. Yeah, irises, very definitely time to uh, dig, divide. Uh, you know, when you do this, take your shears and cut about half off of the top leaf coming up on your German irises just to reduce the transpiration loss. But still a great time to do irises. Have your amaryllis begun growing yet, or are they still just bulbs? Uh, they still have a green on it. Okay. Um, you can, yes, you can divide and transplant. You want to start forcing them into dormancy. Uh, amaryllis have to go dormant in order to bloom the coming season. So, uh, typically with amaryllis, I would have started withholding the water, oh, probably a couple of months ago to force them into dormancy, let all the foliage die back. And then that's the perfect time to, uh, divide and transplant. But, uh, um, if they, you know, if they haven't gone into that dormant period yet, yes, you can divide those, but start keeping them on the drier side. If you want them to bloom, you're going to have to let them go into a dormant state and then resume growth. And that's when you get the flowers from them. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Anything else I can help you with? Um, uh, tell me about the peach trees. Um, Every year we get the uh, uh, brown spot, or it's the rotting on the inside, and then uh-huh. you see the little 
discoloration on the outside, but inside it's rotted. So what's the problem with that? A couple of things. Some varieties are a little bit more susceptible to a fruit rot. Sometimes you get, uh, you know, a little worm, a little insect of some sort getting into them. I find that the... The, yeah, the no, no worms. No worms. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. If you will spray as the fruit develops, if you will make your own fungicide by soaking cornmeal in water, uh, put, you know, just a gallon of water, just put maybe a fourth of a cup of cornmeal in, soak it for 24 hours, use that as a spray. That is one of the best antifungal sprays, and it really does work against the fruit rots and uh I would strongly suggest that. You can also spray with the dilute hydrogen peroxide. If you get the uh, peroxide from the grocery store, dilute it about 50-50 with water, and spray that on the fruit every couple of weeks as it develops, that will stop the development of that. Uh, it's, it's actually uh, a bacterial spot usually that causes that browning and rotting there. The combination of the corn water to prevent any kind of fungal infection, the uh, hydrogen peroxide to stop any of the bacteria, you get almost perfect peaches every time. It also seems to help. Now, you don't want to cover the root flare of the peach trees, but keeping a good layer of mulch over the root zone of peaches, I've had that just, you know, markedly increase the size and the quality of the peaches. So keep your keep your peaches well well mulched. I think it has to do with maintaining a more even soil temperature, and that alone will head off a lot of the problems. Thank you. Appreciate the thoughts. Thank you very much. Well, it's my pleasure. You have a happy new year. I appreciate the call this morning. Okay. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye.